What's up, y'all? Welcome to the first episode of WTF is Happening with the Fed, brought to you by Bitcoin Magazine. I'm your host, Colin Harper, and I am joined with Christian Corollas, also known as CK Snarks. CK, how you doing, man? Doing good, dude. Uh, crazy fucking times. And I think that this podcast is extremely relevant and extremely needed. Our goal here is to really, uh, you know, document the day-to-day actions of the Fed and the uh, federal government and uh, to try to translate it into what it means for Bitcoiners and what it means for uh, Americans and global citizens in general. Yeah, we're just trying to document uh, the kind of day-to-day actions and steps of the Federal Reserve and also the federal government, because as you all probably know, if you're keeping track of the news, the stakes are getting more drastic every day. The Fed's balance sheet is ballooning. Open market operations and QE are going full-fledged, and the economy hasn't even fully shut down from coronavirus yet. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be too alarmist, but... Things are going to get pretty crazy, especially as supply chains seize up even more. And uh, once you start seeing some defaults on all of the debt floating around in multiple, uh, multiple industries and sectors, uh, things are going to get messy. So we wanted to create a podcast that kind of went in depth into just exactly what the Fed is doing to try to counteract the financial and the economic slump and how these tools work and how they might differ from what the Fed has done before. Uh, but before we launch into all of that, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to some of our sponsors. Uh, First and foremost, they've been with uh, us from day one. Give Bitcoin uh, is sponsoring this podcast, and we want to give a big shout out to them. Give Bitcoin is the only place where you can both give the gift of Bitcoin and the gift of Bitcoin education to uh, anyone in your life, uh, especially pre-coiners. Right now, it's a great time to get them into Bitcoin. I've been getting a lot of queries from friends and family, and uh, I've also used Give Bitcoin uh, to introduce people to Bitcoin and give them their stats. Uh, they time lock it from a year to five years and they give them educational content. Uh, the recipient of the Bitcoin, they give them educational content so they can learn about Bitcoin, uh, Austrian economics, why we find it valuable, all that good stuff. So go check out givebitcoin.io. Uh, uh, really great project. They're also launching a new product, right? CK, can you tell us a little bit about that? The parent company of Give Bitcoin is called Swan Bitcoin. And what a crazy time to launch a product that is dedicated to helping Bitcoiners stack sats in the most easy way possible and transform their fiat into Bitcoin that is sent directly to your non custodial wallet. Other than launching it during a black swan and calling it Swan Bitcoin. I just think that the <laughs> like the story is absolutely crazy. The timing is nuts. Yeah, the timing is nuts. And uh, like like uh, Colin said, Corey, Brady, Jan, uh, the entire Swan and Give Bitcoin team are really dedicated to creating the on-ramps that Bitcoin deserves. Um, and whether that's with Give Bitcoin or whether that's with Swan Bitcoin, which is more for someone who's just trying to stack sats, they are Bitcoiners first and they are just trying to do what is best for Bitcoin. So I'm like, super excited to work with them on the regular and uh, very thankful that they are sponsoring. WTF is happening with the Fed. Our last sponsor and probably the most cypherpunk company out there, or maybe they're not even a company, is BISC. Uh, For those of you who do not know what BISC is, BISC is a decentralized order book, a decentralized exchange that enables you to buy Bitcoin with a lot of different payment options and you never have to set up a account with an email and your ID or anything like that. BISC is completely peer-to-peer. 
uh, and it is you know, like I said, one of the most cypherpunk ways to get your hands on Bitcoin and to sell Bitcoin. Uh, when Now that the times are crazy, there are definitely premiums on, on BISC. So if you're in a position where you need to sell, um, it can be a great way to sell Bitcoin for even more than the spot price. Um, and when the times are less crazy, BISC is a fantastic place to buy Bitcoin very close to spot. I bought Bitcoin at only a 3%. Uh, premium. And that that's pretty fantastic for not having to go through a KYC exchange or anything like that and having it completely non-custodial as well. So uh, like I said, it's super easy to set up BISC. I, I did it on my own. I'm pretty non-technical. Uh, and, you know, I bought Bitcoin and it was it was it was a fantastic experience. So kudos to BISC and thank you so much for sponsoring the show. Highly recommend everyone go to BISC, download it and give it a whirl. All right, guys, so let's go ahead and launch into it. Uh, to get everyone up to speed really quickly, the Senate just passed a stimulus bill, a $2 trillion stimulus bill last night. Uh, the president is expected to ratify it, and the executive is expected to push out its own $6 trillion aid package to uh, try to alleviate the pressures on the economy and financial markets right now. That's a lot of money. I mean, we're throwing... What, can you can you explain that? How can the Senate uh, pass a two trillion dollar bill, and then the executive is also going to do another six trillion? Could you explain that? Yeah, I mean it's kind of like a divide and conquering approach, right? So, like uh, the executive under its domain has the U.S. Treasury, uh, which has its own slew of uh, monetary and fiscal tools that it can, or rather, fiscal tools that it can leverage, and. Uh, there are certain things that it can do without Congress's purview, and there are certain things that Congress has to, uh, you know, sign off on uh, for for it to be able to come into law. Uh, so, to kind of give you some context, for instance, for the for the Senate bill, uh, the deal includes 500 billion for corporate liquidity programs, um, which a lot will go to the airline industry, uh, and 367 billion for small business loans. And 100 billion for hospitals, 150 billion for states and local governments, and this is also uh, tacked onto the $1,200 that every American who makes uh, below $75,000 a year will get. Um, so it's to answer your question, it's it's kind of like you know the executive can do one thing in one area of the economy, and the Senate and Congress can do another. Um, and it looks like the executive bill is also going to have. Uh, bailouts, excuse me, the executive bill will have bailouts for the airline industry, small businesses, checks of family, and these will be just blanket bailouts, right? Like these are not loans like in the Senate bill, which is offering loans and, and, and relief in terms of, of loaning out money with the expect of a return. The, the, the executive bill, which hasn't, or the executive uh, order, which hasn't been fully formed yet, will be just straight bailouts. And to the tunes of trillions of dollars, I mean, stuff that is kind of crazy to fathom. So uh, I really want to just take a step back really quickly to 2019 so we can get an idea of kind of how we got to this point. Um, at the end of 2019, the Federal Reserve started engaging in open market operations in the repurchasing market, a repurchasing agreement market, also known as the repo market. Uh, the repo market is an overnight lending market where banks give each other short-term loans. And when I say short, I mean, usually they're resolved within a day's time at most a month or longer. And if they take that long to resolve, that's usually a bad sign. But uh, the repo market is where banks lend each other short-term liquidity because bank A may not be able to have, may not have enough cash on hand to meet its obligations at the end of the day. So bank two gives it a short-term boost in liquidity. 
Well, in September, banks stopped lending each other uh, money for the Fed's target rate, which is the uh, the Federal Reserve's suggested rate for giving out these loans. What is that? Two percent. They the, the banks were asking for ten percent from each other. So there was a liquidity crunch. The Fed stepped in, and by the end of 2019, you had uh, half a trillion dollars worth of repo operations. And now they're still doing that. Uh, they're offering a trillion dollars daily. That doesn't mean a trillion dollars will be pumped into the financial markets daily. But that means that if banks need it and they have the right collateral, that they can receive that liquidity from the Fed. So it's basically a liquidity guarantee, and there's not really a cap on it. Um, and we've seen the same thing with uh, QE, quantitative easing, the uh, process by which the Federal Reserve purchases bonds and uh, other, quote, high liquid securities, end quote, from banks. To, put, to pump cash into the system. Uh, the Federal Reserve has also announced recently that it will do unlimited QE for the foreseeable future. So Colin, I think something that a lot of people are confused about is what is the difference between these repo market purchases and this QE thing and money printing? At the end of the day, both of them accomplish the same goal of flushing the system with cash when cash is not abundant. Um, and they both also have the side effect of expanding the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Now, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is a balance sheet that lists all of its obligations and liabilities. Uh, when the Fed is putting money into the economy, its balance sheet expands because it is purchasing assets from the open market and putting cash into the system. So its debts and obligations rise, and we've seen it raise to $4.6 trillion recently. Uh, with QE, the Fed goes directly to to banks and primary lenders and says, okay, what assets do you have on hand, like treasury bonds, or in some cases, mortgage-backed securities, which we'll get into later. And they say, we will take these off your hands at this interest rate and give you this amount of money for it. The idea here is that eventually that money will be paid back to the Fed. And that's usually what proponents of uh, modern monetary theory, post-Keynesianism, and just Fed proponents say, well, that money, it's not really creating money because it'll be paid back. Well, that's not entirely true because the Fed does print money to buy these bonds. This, this money is generated with the purpose of purchasing these bonds. And with the repo market, it's not very different. I mean, they're still purchasing. There is still collateral put up for a short-term loan. The difference in the repo market is that it's a short-term loan in, in terms of literally days, weeks, or, or at most a month or two. And that, that, that money is typically paid back very quickly. With QE you know, these are much longer term loans. Um, and the, 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 the guarantee of payback is not always set in stone. And that's why you often hear people refer to repo as QE light, because ultimately still flushing the system with cash, you're, 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 you're putting cash into the system where there wasn't cash before, and you're buying assets from distressed financial institutions to give them cash in place of those assets. So basically, to answer your question, Christian, not much difference to some people. It's kind of a, a difference of degree rather than substance. Essentially, repo activity is like QE light or short-term QE, uh, this money printing in order to meet obligations in the short term for banks. And then actual quantitative easing is much more long-term in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the nature of uh, the bond purchases and when that uh, printed money is expected to be returned. But just to zoom out, essentially think of it this way, like in a world where um, businesses do not have enough, very specific businesses, financial banking businesses do not have enough capital to meet their daily requirements, um, either on a long term or a short term basis, 
the government is going to make money in order to fulfill those requirements um, just to make it look like nothing is wrong. You know, essentially the whole, all of this is to make it seem as though nothing is wrong because the government is going to on the daily bail them out. Yes. The government is acting like a guaranteed source of liquidity. And for the repo markets, this is, uh, can be a good thing if it's short term and the operations are not long or, you know, don't carry month to month, but they've been carrying on since September. And uh, with QE, you know, just to hit on one more point, you know, with the repo agreements, they're putting equities and securities and maybe mortgage backed securities, all these things as collateral. And usually the debt's paid back very quickly. With QE, the, the debt isn't paid back until the bond reaches maturity, or at least it doesn't have to be paid back until the bond reaches maturity that, that the, the Fed is buying from these banks. And, you know, if they were just buying bonds, that might be okay. But they've started buying a lot of other things too, like mortgage backed securities uh, are, are entering are entering the, the the Fed's purview for things that they're buying. They're buying other equities that they label as, quote, highly liquid securities, end quote. And this is where this gets reckless, right? Because QE in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, just like leveraging debt isn't a bad thing if it's done responsibly. But when you start buying up assets indiscriminately to pump money into the system, the Fed's balance sheet expands to a point, it becomes very difficult to unwind it and get that liquidity back what we're seeing right now is that the Fed no longer is going to primary lenders uh, for, for this QE. They're going to the secondary market too. Now, this is the primary lenders are your big banks like JP Morgan, Citigroup, US Bank, all those big wigs. The secondary market is not everyone else, but corporations. Um, I, I might be butchering some of these, but I think this is right family offices, smaller financial institutions, people who aren't licensed to deal with the Fed. And what the Fed has started doing, and you haven't seen this in the mainstream media, which is why I'm super interested in it. um, You're starting to see these secondary market corporate credit facilities and term asset-backed security loan facilities and primary market corporate credit facilities that they set up recently. This is something that they started doing in 2008 and 2009. And this is like stepping up this this is this is raising the stakes like what they've put into the system so far with qe and repo hasn't been enough they can't go to the primary lenders to give liquidity to the system they have to go to the secondary market itself this is not a good sign can you explain like why why this is so why is this so fundamentally different like essentially they're doing the same thing they're just going to a wider net Right. So you can think of it like this, like when the, when the, when, when the Fed goes to a primary lender for QE or repo, or let's just say QE in this instance, because this is what we're talking about. That primary lender then distributes that liquidity downstream, right? Because the primary lender banks with secondary, uh, secondary, uh, the secondary market and so on and so forth. The idea with QE is, okay, there's a cash crunch, give big banks cash crunch, then that liquidity can find itself into trickle down into other areas of the economy and relieve spending being frozen up, right? And uh, certain uh, payments not being made on obligations and debts. Well, if going to the primary lenders isn't fixing the situation, then that means that you have to go to the secondary lenders and go further down into the uh, ladders of the economy to its secondary aspects and the economy and the financial markets. You have to go to the secondary uh, layer of, of the flow of debt and uh, the extension of credit. And you have to guarantee their loans. 
So you're, you're basically, it's kind of like the, the wider net analogy is kind of good. And it's like, if you try to catch too many fish in one net, then the net breaks. And what we're starting to see now is that the Fed is going to start guaranteeing the debt, you know, more or less providing unlimited liquidity to some of these secondary market participants. And it's not unlimited because you still have to have collateral backing the loan. But again, if they start being indiscriminate with the, with the assets that they choose to purchase, remember everyone, mortgage-backed securities led to the financial crisis of 2008. Like it was, it was th- these reckless loaning policies and the bundling of these, these shit mortgages into uh, mortgage-backed securities and CDOs that precipitated the worst financial crisis in America since the Great Depression. And now the Fed is thinking about buying these things directly from financial institutions. That's where the moral hazard comes in. And that's what you always see Bitcoiners talking about. Uh, in 2008, the crisis was really happening kind of in the banking market level, these like primary dealer level. When the crisis happens now, like Colin is describing, it's going to be happening on the government level, on the Fed level. Like this is the Fed's balance sheet is like the the leverage and the toxic asset liabilities um, have not have now now gone completely through the entire system. Like they have completely tainted the system. Like if you think of like, you know, almost like a, an onion and it has these layers, like the Fed is at the core of that, right? And now the, the rot has gone all the way to the core. I want to latch on to what you were saying about the Fed uh, assuming this risk and expanding its balance sheet. So just to go back, when, when the Fed decides to purchase assets from the open market, its balance sheet expands. You started seeing it explode after 2008. It went from under a trillion to four point. Uh, three or five trillion at its peak, and we just started on. And, 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 and uh, remember, everyone, during this time, interest rates were between zero and 0.25 percent, and the the Federal Reserve slowly ratcheted that up to 2.5 percent between 2008 and 2018. We couldn't even get above 2.5 percent before the entire thing started unwinding again. When when you hear people talk about unwinding QE, so. What happens when you print a bunch of cash to buy assets, right? Eventually, those bonds are going to mature. Um, the assets mature and you it back on those bonds, right? So the banks start buying their assets back from the Fed, and the Fed starts offloading assets on its balance sheet. Remember, these assets are things like uh, treasury bonds, uh, mortgage-backed securities, again, those quote-unquote highly liquid securities, end quote. Um, these, are, these, are, these are debt assets. They're obligations. And the banks start buying them back up from the Federal Reserve. Uh, Once the banks start buying them from the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet starts to shrink, right? We couldn't even get a year out from when we started unwinding the Fed's latest round of QE that the repo market seized up and that QE4 now needs to be kicked off and interest rates are dropped to zero again. You have this idea in modern monetary theory and and in Keynesian theory that the Fed can just keep buying assets because those assets aren't really adding new money into the system because they're offset by liabilities and they will be paid back. I want to say this clearly, unwinding QE, it's, it's, it's highly theoretical and it's a fantasy. We're seeing that it's not really working right now. The Fed's balance sheet is at $4.6 trillion an all-time high. And by the end of all of these stimulus packages, you're going to see $10 trillion balance sheet. And at that point, you know, uh, minting two platinum coins for $2 trillion doesn't really sound that crazy because it's all balloon money at that point. It's all being printed and backed by credit that might not even be good. I mean, hell, man, 
if half the financial system didn't know that the that the tranches on their CDOs back in the 2008 financial crisis shouldn't have been rated AAA and that they were in fact barely B, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you trust that system. I don't know how you can trust that all this debt is good because a lot of it is not good debt. And a lot of you're going to see a lot of defaults. Hell, man, I've been seeing social media posts about people with 15 Airbnbs and 10 Airbnbs and eight rental properties. That's the same shit that was going on in 2008. I don't think we've learned our lesson. You know what, man? It's like Ron Paul said, this one's going to be worse. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I went off on a tangent there for a second. You're totally right. And just to kind of add to that, I actually had this realization last night. I think that people think that rich people are going to be safe from this. Um, but it's not about rich versus poor. This is about leveraged versus unleveraged. Only the people that are unleveraged, only the people that are living well within their means, they have a lot of equity either in assets that they own in cash or real estate, or it's people that don't and it's people that are leveraged, right? So you can have an extremely quote unquote wealthy person on paper, but they are extremely leveraged into like eight different condos and four different Airbnbs. And all of them depend on, you know, having a steady income stream to pay off the mortgage and to maintain those assets. Um, But as soon as every single person is losing their job, no one is traveling, you know, those liabilities are met with zero cash flow. Um, And that once wealthy person who is extremely leveraged um, is now fucked. Um, So this is really leveraged versus unleveraged. And if you're leveraged, good luck. Yeah. And I think I'm glad you brought that up because a highly leveraged market environment in a good economy and a good financial boom is extremely lucrative. And what people don't realize is that's the, the system that we've been running on for the past eight years or 10 years. It's been highly leveraged. And, and I think a perfect example that really kind of gets people thinking about this is looking at what airline stocks have done recently, right? I mean, South, let's take Southwest, for example. I fucking love Southwest, but I'm, I'm, a little, I, I'm a little disgusted by the fact that 75% of their cash over the last decade went to stock buybacks. And what you're having, that's not just in the airline industry. That's across all sectors. These banks and these corporations got addicted to cheap liquidity from the Fed. And to keep up earnings and keep you know, their board members happy, they bought back stocks at record numbers. Now, stock buybacks aren't a bad thing innately. Like many market tools and like many economic or business tools, it's all about the incentives behind them. Um, I don't think that they're a bad thing entirely, but again, it all goes back to this moral hazard. You buy back 75% of your stock, you create artificial demand for your stock. Guess what happens? You, you get a stock market that loses three years of gains in two weeks. And that's the system we're living under now. People talking about Bitcoin being volatile. Well, hell yeah, it's volatile, but look at, the, look at the financial market. You think it's much different? The more we leverage the system, the more volatile and risky it becomes. And people have been sold this idea that the stock market and that their 401ks and everything, it's guaranteed, right? Well, nothing's guaranteed anymore. You know, I think people are finally starting to wake up to that. We've got a Federal Reserve that is basically being called on by the executive. The executive's plan is $6 trillion, and it would basically require $4 trillion in freshly printed currency from the Fed. Um, you're getting the Fed pulled on by the executive and the legislative. You know, they're, they're, the Fed will be involved in helping uh, 
you know, businesses with, with the, the, the Senate stimulus package as well, they'll be, they'll be offering direct loans. Um, and another thing I want to point out too, is with these, those facilities we were talking about that the Fed is setting up, those secondary market and primary market corporate credit facilities, uh, that was something the Fed started in 2008. They're doing it again now. There's another one called Term Asset Backed Security Loan Facilities. And I'm going to read a, an excerpt from uh, the American Action Forum, an article on their website. Uh, it's, a, it's a great article explaining some of these things. Uh, the, the TALF program, or the Term Asset Backed Securities Loan Facility, uh, is a program that provides financing to investors willing to invest in financial instruments securitizations backed by small businesses and consumers. Again, the Fed is going to have to go to small businesses now too, and medium-sized businesses, just like the stimulus packages uh, are talking about. They're going to need money now too. These securitizations include, for example, student loans, credit card loans, and auto loans in the asset-backed securities market. So they're going to buy asset-backed securities that are, you know, basically bundles of debt from anything from auto loans to credit card loans to student loans. And, you know, you, Wait, you don't have to go can far. Can you think of can you think of shittier, lower quality debt than credit card debt right. and car loans and student debt? Honestly, man, like this is literally freaking grime. This is sludge. Exactly. You know, you're not buying the ripe fucking apples out of the bunch, man. You're buying the rotten, shitty ones that the farmers wouldn't feed to the hogs. And 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 that's the that's what I was kind of talking about earlier. Is like QE in itself. No, it's not a bad thing. But look at the assets that they're buying. They're not just buying treasuries anymore. They're buying anything that they can to pump money into the system. And if you buy dirt, you know, if you buy crap, then you're going to get crap in return. It's just, you know, you almost think that they got to do it because everything's so upside down. But it's, it's you know, the ramifications of this. I mean, this is unprecedented, man. We haven't seen an economy go. I mean, we haven't seen a central bank going to overdrive like this Um you know, or central banks across the world going to overdrives like this ever. And that's the other thing that I think people take for granted. They think these fiat monetary systems are so rock solid because it's the only thing that they've known, but they're extremely new. They're not even a century old if we really want to think about it going off the gold standard completely. But, you know, Keynesian theory is still relatively young. And what we're starting to see now, man, is it's evolving into modern monetary theory where the central bank will basically have unfettered license to intervene in monetary policy as much as it wants to. Because as long as you can keep production up with inflation, you don't have any problems. At least that's how the theory goes. Okay, so let's get back into uh, TALF. Okay, yeah, so TALF, from this expert, you know, and this takes kind of the state talking point without a small market for without a market for small business and consumer loans, lenders simply stopped making loans to consumers and small businesses. Uh, that's pretty obvious. TALF is therefore vi- vital to maintaining access to credit for small businesses and consumers. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about when you were like, well, you know, when they're casting a wide net, why is this a problem? Well, if you're going to the primary lenders and they're the major fonts of liquidity for the entire system and also loans, right? Uh, they're, they're huge credit lenders. If those guys aren't giving out credit, you know, there's probably a reason they're not giving out credit because there's something wrong with the markets. And that's not doesn't necessarily mean that the Fed has to step in and change the markets, you know, maybe let the markets resolve themselves. But, you know, the primary lenders aren't aren't lending to the to the secondary market, so the Fed says, "Okay, well then we'll just go straight to the secondary market." You know, if if the liquidity is not making its way downstream, 
I don't think that the, the, the answer is to flood the downstream planes, right? You have to figure out what's blocking the liquidity. But the Fed's response is to just turn the fire hose on the whole thing. And going back to what you said, yeah, dude, this is credit card debt, student loan debt, and auto loan debt. All of those are super easy to leverage. Um, one of our friends took out tens of thousands of dollars to buy Bitcoin. He had a good credit score, right? And the, the bank didn't even ask him what he was using it for. You're right. It's the worst debt possible. And now the Fed's going to buy it. And I don't think people really realize that, right? Like they don't really think about the value of what's being purchased. You know, when you go to the grocery store, hopefully you, you look at your produce and you look at your, your, your meat and you're worried about the quality of it, right? The Fed right now is saying, we don't care about the quality. Give it all to us. It's scary, man. It really, it really is scary. Interest rates are 0 to 0.25% right now. Crazy low, negative, not out of the picture because we're already seeing bond yields go negative, which is something we didn't really touch on. First time in America? Yeah, baby. First time, man. And people don't think negative rates are coming, but they probably are. The Federal Reserve is offering $1 trillion in daily repo operations. If you can go to Federal Reserve, you can look up actually how much is being taken every day. It's in the tens, uh, tens of billions, 40 billions daily. If you go to the federalreserve.gov, they have charts on all of this stuff. Uh, kind of nice to put that transparent. Um, unlimited QE, uh, they're going to be offering, like repo, just basically limitless liquidity. And they're not just going to primary lenders now, but they're going to, or primary dealers, they're going to the secondary market. What this means for Bitcoin, that is the million dollar question. And by God, I really hope it means good things. You know, man... Uh, it's kind of crazy. I thought we were starting to see the decoupling a little bit. I think we are starting to see the roots of it. Still some correlation with uh, financial markets. I think there's still some pain left, if I'm being honest. Um, uh, it might, maybe not. I hope I'm wrong, but I still think there's probably some pain left. But yeah, man, I mean, this is what Bitcoin was literally made for. And that's why I think so many Bitcoiners right now are simultaneously kind of like anxious, but also exhilarated. We've been talking about this for a decade and it's finally happening. Yeah. I mean, I think I can definitely attest to the the dual anxiousness as well as popcorn that exists. <laughs> but I, I, I agree. Like, it's difficult to tell. I am extremely glad that I have Bitcoin in my custody. It has now become extremely difficult to get gold um, delivery yes. to get the physical gold at this point. Like, you pretty much, you can't get it. You can still get Bitcoin relatively easily. And I think that that's going to be a really interesting paradigm. I think what in the short term is creating the most uncertainty for me is we are still going through this massive deleveraging event. And I have a suspicion that a lot of quote unquote hardcore hodlers and hodlers of last resort, uh, people that would never sell Bitcoin, and I would consider myself in that position. I have a feeling that a lot of us maybe too leveraged ourselves. And if that is in fact true, if Bitcoiners are too leveraged, then a lot of Bitcoiners that would never have sold Bitcoin will be forced to sell Bitcoin. So what we saw a few weeks ago during quote unquote Black Thursday, when Bitcoin dumped 40% was almost all of those coins were new coins. In Bitcoin, you can see the age of the coin. Um, and almost all those coins that were sold were new. So that indicates that the long-term holders, the people that have been holding for an extended period of time were not selling and they hadn't lost, lost faith. And that held the ground on the Bitcoin price to some degree. And that's why it's rebounded a little bit. 
if those people can remain, if they can continue to not sell, that's going to be fantastic, right? Bitcoin will moon. In the case that those people are too over leveraged and they have to sell, they're put in a position where they just need to flee for liquidity. You know, we could see Bitcoin hitting some new lows very soon. And I think that that's very possible. And that's the one thing that I'm worried about is just having to sell any coin because I, like you said, I bought <laughs> stacked a little too much under 10,000 <laughs> and around that range. But, you know, I do think that, and shout out to the data points you were talking about. Uh, you can also check out some good analysis of that at coinmetrics.io. Um, if you haven't looked at Coinmetrics stuff yet, like give it a glance. They have fantastic data. Unchained Capital also did really good analysis on this too. I think they had a fantastic tweet thread. Yeah, Unchained's got some great stuff. Both great, uh, great companies in the in the Bitcoin space. Um, but yeah, I think uh, new lows are possible. But you know, maybe they're maybe they, they won't happen. You know, every time someone gets every time the community gets bearish and asks for another bottom, when they get one, they almost never get it. Um, maybe we'll go back to three k. Um, retesting that would make sense to me. And if we do, then I'll buy more there. The only time that I would get worried is if we drop below a thousand. I, I would really kind of worry there. But I honestly think that if you got to a thousand, you would have way too many Bitcoiners like selling kidneys. You know, like that would just be way too attractive of a price, especially for a lot of people who understand Bitcoin but haven't do, uh, you know dived in yet. They they would that would be way too attractive. My my long term outlook for Bitcoin right now is that Bitcoin at five k, you know, when we dipped to, to there into thirty eight hundred a few weeks ago, that was just a fucking crazy buying opportunity. And if we range in this, you know, if we stay in this range for even a year, I would like for it to rip. But honestly, a consolidation period would be nice. Um, I, I just hope that it stays stable throughout all this and. Uh, I don't think a consolidation period matters if everyone that believes in Bitcoin has no cash. It doesn't matter. That's true. And like, um, we're going to find out how fiscally responsible Bitcoin believers are, because this is really what yeah. this price is about. Fiscally responsible versus over leveraged, right? So if that's pretty true, if, if Bitcoiners are fiscally responsible, like they're not going to sell their coin and this shit's going to moon. On top of that, I, I do think that there may be, you know, accelerated education and mass appeal for owning a better digital asset. Um, and that could help Bitcoin moon as well. But uh, we'll see if that really happens. It seems like there's massive demand for physical gold. Um, and uh, a lot of companies like Unchained Capital and River and a lot of these other kind of companies are making, that are making it easy to buy and get and store, you know, Bitcoin are reporting record, um, record number of uses. So people are taking their stuff off exchanges. They're getting their own custody. Um, they're buying Bitcoin too at record amount. So we'll see. Like it just depends on you know where that ratio goes and how and how long you know these people can keep buying and keep reallocating the Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing I will say is that I think that I mean, what a time, man! Like Federal Reserve's basically like unlimited money printer go burring, and then the happening is still on for May. We'll see, man. We'll see if the supply shock does anything. I've seen some pretty good arguments that suggest that, you know, it's such a small, such a paltry amount of like the outstanding Bitcoin supply that it's not enough to affect the trading. I think that that doesn't take into account how much miners rely on exchanges providing very steady liquidity. 
But at the end of the day, I think that it's going to be wild seeing the happening play out in these times. And uh, I, I will say, man, I've never been more bullish. This was a info-packed episode. I think you did a fantastic job, Colin, of really breaking down uh, individual things and what the Fed is doing differently now in terms of changes to QE and changes to the repo market. Uh, so thanks a lot for kind of helping you know me and others understand in the future, in these future shows, we may do one or two a week, and we will look to get more experts onto the show. Um, so that way you can graduate beyond, uh, you know, me and Colin. Ultimately, you know, our goal is to try to translate what is happening. It's really kind of difficult to understand and try to make it accessible. So that way you can understand what this means for you and what this means for Bitcoin. Colin, where can people find you? You guys can find me at As I Lay Hodling on Twitter. Also, just my name, Colin Harper, C-O-L-I-N-H-A-R-P-E-R. Uh, my author page is also on uh, bitcoinmagazine.com. What about you, CK? Yep. Also on Twitter at CK underscore snarks at POV crypto pod. That is my podcast. And you can find me there. Make sure to follow all of us and make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine and subscribe. So that way you can get this show every single week and stay up to date with what the fuck is happening with the Fed. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.